Well, last week uh, we examined very much what new life is. Uh, if you haven't heard that, so, uh, do uh, listen to it on the website and so on. It uh, should be helpful as we went through uh, this uh, passage together. Jesus says to Nicodemus, look down at verse 7. Uh, I'm sure you know, of course, you must be born again, he says. That is to enter good, God's good eternal kingdom, that is heaven. Jesus declares to Nicodemus and to us as his hearers today, you must be born again. There must be new life in us if we are to enter God's good eternal kingdom. And what did that mean? We, we looked at kind of three things, didn't we? We saw that that new life must be a radical new life. That means a total transformation from the inside out as God breathes his new life into us by his spirit. So secondly, we saw that this new life is a necessary new life. Even Nicodemus, this member of the Jewish ruling council, wasn't good enough on his own, in his own merits, to to enter God's good eternal kingdom. He, even he, must be born again. He must have God's spirit breathe new life into him through faith. And lastly, we saw, thirdly, uh, we saw that this new life had to be received, had to be received by faith. We must believe or trust or have faith in the one who is lifted up for us, the Son of Man, as you see in verse 14 and 15 of our passage, the Son of Man, Jesus, who is lifted up for us. As Jesus is lifted up on the cross, he is like the bronze snake, which Jesus is pointing Nicodemus to uh, from Numbers chapter 21 in the Old Testament. That there in the wilderness, a bronze snake is lifted up on a pole by Moses, as mentioned in verse 14. And like the bronze snake, Jesus takes away the punishment and justice that our rebellion deserves. The poison, if you like, the pain in our lives that are turning, back, turning our backs on God deserves. Well, it's taken on Jesus that we might stand renewed and restored for eternity. So last week we saw that new life, being born again, is fundamental to our understanding of who we are, our identity. But also, it is fundamental to our priority. Individually and corporately. And that is where more we're going to go this week. We'll begin uh, to see how being born again is lived out, not only in our own lives, but also as we meet others. First point, and you'll sit down there. Let's think about, firstly, new life in others. I wonder. It's time for you to think about friends that you have, neighbours that you have, colleagues that you have, people that you go to sports clubs with, those kind of bits. Think. Do you have someone in your life, you know, of all those people, work colleague, neighbour, sports friend, whatever it may be. Do you have someone in your life, someone who you, I know you don't want to say this, but you feel someone you look at and you think, they'll never become a Christian. You look at their life, you hear of what they think of your faith, and because of that you begin to think, there's not too much point, is there? Sharing the good news of Jesus with them. Let's think through a couple of kind of categories of people who they might, these kind of people, number of people it might be. Person A, I'm sure many of you know, there's a person who you know, that they just seem so satisfied with life. So content. They seem to have everything that they want. They just 
skip around, who go glee all over their faces the whole time. Now, I doubt that any of us actually think or say something like this. We don't think they need Jesus. We never say that. I don't think so, many of us. But if you notice how the niggling doubts chip can chip away at our hearts and minds... And very soon we begin to lose that kind of urgency that we once had. And we may actually even begin to look at their life and think, well, that looks pretty good in comparison to what I have. New life in Christ? Comparing to... That's person A, very very satisfied, seems so content. Person B, maybe you've got a friend who's just so difficult to talk to. Yeah, when it comes to your faith in Jesus Christ, I had a friend at school, I used to sit next to him in most of my A-level classes, and uh, his name was Graham, he was a pain in the backside, uh, to put it lightly. He was the school geek, uh, fiercely intelligent. He looked and dressed and moved in the most awkward of ways. Um, He was ridiculed by so many, but I sat next to him and I looked after him as best I could. And when I was asked to pick the school team, uh, the, the, you know, the football team and so on, I always picked him first. Even though he was the worst at every sport, I always picked him first. I tried to look after him. And Graham was this phenomenally intelligent man. He got 100%. Yes, 100% in one of his A-levels uh, in maths. But I think his sport at school, was, it wasn't chess, although it was brilliant at chess, of course he was. Um, his sport at school was basically to pick on me and to mock me for my faith in Jesus Christ. He was an atheist, and he said that very loudly. I don't know, do you you know people like that? You know, although you know your Christian faith is intellectually robust, it makes sense. Uh, It can be intimidating to speak to people, can't it, who are so fiercely intelligent, and they're out there just to make you look silly. Do you avoid sharing the good news of the Lord Jesus with people like that? So we've seen the kind of the content, the self, the satisfied. We've seen the you know intelligently robust and 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 out to get you. What about person C, the morally upstanding person? We all know them, don't we? You have a friend, you know, and maybe in the workplace, they're they're kind of known brackets as the kind of mother Teresa of your work, you know, or in the local area, they do everything for charity, and when they do it, they do it so lovely, they're brilliant, they're so charming, everything they do is magnificent. They help out everywhere for charity. They're selfless. They're regarded so well amongst your, yeah, amongst your friendship group. Do you know someone like that? Do you tell them their need for the gospel? Do you realise the problem? that When you do, both they and all of their friends will know what you think of them. They will know that you think that, that they're not good enough for God. So do you tell them, or do you keep quiet? You may even play those games in your own mind where you say to yourself, I won't tell them because in not telling them I can tell so many others. And the point I'm making is this. We can justify our silence in all sorts of ways with all sorts of people, and we can make innumerable excuses to keep quiet about the new life that Jesus offers through faith in him. With the intelligent, with the satisfied friend, oh, the morally upstanding friend as well. Let me ask you, if you were to meet Nicodemus, look at down at verse 1, you'll see him. I wonder if you would keep quiet. 
You know what you like. I I mean, look at him in verse 1. Now there's a Pharisee, the ultimate rule keeper. A man named Nicodemus who's a member of the respected Jewish ruling council. You see, when when people see this phrase, born again, you know, we have to have new life. And Jesus says that very clearly to Nicodemus, you must have new life. When they see that, they think that only kind of applies to the the needy people of this world, the broken people. You know them. Or those who are just clamouring for a little bit more kind of, you know, rules in their lives. They think that's what this kind of uh, phrase applies to. Nicodemus, you see, is the total opposite. I hope you get that. He's the total opposite of a broken and needy person. He's a member of the Jewish ruling council. What does that tell us? It's the Sanhedrin. From that we know, one, he's a man. Two, he's fairly old. Three, he's pretty rich. uh, Pretty very rich. And he's incredibly intelligent. Look at verse 10. Even Jesus recognises that he's Israel's teacher. This is a man who is at home amongst the greatest and good of his culture and his time. You might say he's part of the cultural elite. He went to Eton. He was head boy at Eton. He went to Cambridge. They begged him to go. He's now got a PhD and he's a professor with a freehold. He's part of the establishment. He's respected, he's admired, he'd even be feared. Does he come to Jesus and go, oh, Jesus, you know, begging to know more about who he is and so on? Asking questions. Is he seeking, in his, uh, seeking faith? No. Look at verse 2. When he comes to Jesus, he comes to Jesus at night. And look what he says. He says, Rabbi, we, plural, know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. You see, Nicodemus is coming to Jesus here and he says, we know, yeah, we guys, we the establishment, we the respected teachers of Israel, we know, we know that you've got something here. But he comes at night, doesn't he? It's interesting that. As a representative, representative of others, it seems he's coming to do a bit of business. Nicodemus is doing what a whole bunch of you guys do, whether it's in business or in uh, you know, government, whatever you do, you nip off to a bar at the end of work and you do some politicking. You bring guys onto your team, you say, you've got something, I've got something, you can work with this, we can work together, can't we? He comes to Jesus, representing a few of the Jewish ruling council, knowing many of them were against Jesus. And he comes at night and he says, he doesn't want people to see. And he says to Jesus, we see you're a teacher, a teacher. And we see you do some pretty amazing stuff, some miracles as well. Come and join our gang. And we're with the respected, powerful leaders of the time. We've got something to offer to you, respectability. And you've got something to offer us as well. Let's work together, shall we? I'm slightly reading into the passage, if you see what I mean, but you, you get the idea. What is clear is that Nicodemus is not coming to Jesus and he's begging him to say, oh, I'm really seeking in my faith at the moment. He's not saying that at all, is he? He hasn't got needs. He's not broken. His life is sorted. He's, he's not looking for any kind of spiritual experience here. 
But even then, with all of those credentials that Nicodemus has, even then, to this mature, rich, intelligent, stable, respected, not spiritually seeking man, what does Jesus say? He says, you must be born again. You must be born again. Even you. The necessity and the urgency for new life in others is not overlooked by Jesus. He doesn't make excuses and keep quiet. Jesus sees in others that that fundamental priority that they must be born again. He's not clouded by who Nicodemus is and, and what he's done and his wealth and his status. He's not clouded by any of those things. He just simply says, you must be born again. I wonder, do we see, as we look around the office, as we look around our friends, as you look to your neighbour, as you chat to him this afternoon, or her this evening, as you look around, do you see the urgency and the necessity of new life in them? Do we speak words to our friends and show them that they need new life? I wonder, let me just, I know these are difficult questions to answer. They're difficult for me to say. I hear them myself. I wonder, is our reticence to speak actually condoning and supporting the view of our friends that they are actually okay? That they don't need Jesus? They don't need to be born again? Is our silence like essentially a little bit of a pat on the back saying, hey, you're okay? As you are, you're denying Jesus as Lord and Saviour. Oh, it's not me this, it's Jesus. He's saying, no, you're not okay. You need to be born again. Now, Jesus is thinking of us when he uses this image of being born again. I think it's, it's so clever, isn't it? With Nicodemus, he uses his image. And in chapter 4, the following chapter, we get him with the, the woman of the well, the broken, totally needy woman. You know, life's an absolute mess. And what, he doesn't go say, you need to be born again. She knows she's an absolute mess. He says, you need living water. Come and drink. But he says, the most sorted, the most able, the most everything you can imagine, you're nothing and you need to be born again. As I mentioned last week, Jesus doesn't come to Nicodemus in any way and sort of like comfort him in that sense. He says, no, sit down, listen. You've got to be born again. You need total restoration. This rich, intelligent, content man with his PhD, his luxury house and his sports car outside. You look at him and you go, he needs nothing. No, he needs everything. In Christ. And you can imagine, can't you, Nicodemus coming back to Jesus, and, and he doesn't, but you can imagine Nicodemuses that we know coming back to the gospel and saying, oh, you know, faith in Jesus, well, it's okay for you. Oh, yeah, you know, it, it's, it's a bit of a crutch. I'm okay if you do that, but it's not for me. I know it's really, really helpful for the weak and, you know, there's some people down the road in that not-so-nice area, you know, they don't have the little blinds and shutters. You know, those kind of people, it's, it's for them, but it's not for me. 
I don't need to be born again. I wonder how many of your friends would say that. I wonder if you'll speak the words that Jesus would know. You must be. You must be born again. When you think about new life in others, I wonder who do you shy away from speaking to? Because they look so content? Or because they're so clever? Or because they're so morally upstanding? Who do you shy away from speaking to? It's hard, isn't it? All I can say is don't do it. Stop it. Love the people you know and tell them about Jesus and the new life he offers. This is not a fringe element of the Christian faith, an optional extra. If you think you can withhold this from your satisfied, intelligent, wealthy friends or your do-gooding friends, whatever they, whoever they are, if you think that is true, I have to very gently challenge you. I don't think you understand the Christian faith at all. And Jesus here is challenging the man with the most moral structure and all of the rules in his life. The most sorted and stable man you could ever meet. And Nicodemus is going to have to rethink his everything. When we consider and pray for new life in others, let's be careful we don't exclude the Nicodemuses that we know. And I have to say, we probably know quite a few, don't we? Secondly, and more briefly, let's now look at uh, new life in me. As I said, there's going to be quite a bit of application here. Two brief points. As we see how Nicodemus' understanding first of Jesus changes, and, and, and what does that change bring in him? How did it change his life? Now remember how Nicodemus understands who Jesus is when he first approaches him that night. Look at verse 2, just to refresh our minds. How does Jesus understand who Nicodemus, sorry, how does Nicodemus understand who Jesus is? He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a, what a teacher who has come from God. For no one can perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. Who does Jesus, sorry, who does Nicodemus think Jesus is? Understanding, his first understanding is rabbi, teacher, who can do some extraordinary things as well, some miracles and so on. But what does Jesus do in response? He sees and understands how Nicodemus views him, and what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus is a teacher, and so therefore he teaches him. And by teaching him, what does he show? He shows he's so much more than a teacher. He turns Nicodemus, as we looked at before, to the Old Testament, to Numbers 21. Nicodemus would have known that well. It's like going over old ground with him. He takes him back to that account of the bronze snake in the wilderness. You can see it in verse 13 and 14 of our passage. But by teaching him, what does Jesus do? He shows that Nicodemus, yes, he's showing Jesus, I'm a teacher, he's saying, but I'm also a saviour. And I'm a saviour who will be lifted up for you. The problem that Nicodemus has is the same problem that so many have. And maybe some of us here have today. We may be in church for so many years. But it's a problem that so many of us can have. Because Nicodemus, what does he want? He wants to approach Jesus and he wants to just have him as a teacher. 
Someone to work with. Someone to give him a little bit of direction, a bit of guidance. And so he can kind of just make his way to heaven with all the gifts and all the abilities that he has. Nothing too life-changing though, please. Don't, Don't get too heavy on me. But Jesus has other plans, doesn't he? And he moves Nicodemus from, from him just seeing, oh, Jesus is just a teacher, to hopefully seeing that he now loves him as a saviour. And it's a move that we all must make if we are to enter the kingdom of God. You see, if you think that Jesus has just come down from heaven uh, to teach us, now through his word, the Bible, and by his spirit, such that you, through his teaching, you can do the work to get closer to God, having been taught. If you think that what, that is what the Christian faith is all about, you are so wrong, I'm really sorry. Yes, you have to have the humility to be taught. And like Nicodemus, we all have to think about the truth of who Jesus is and what he has come to do, especially in that work of being lifted up onto the cross in our place to take the justice, the punishment that all our sin deserves. Yes, but like Nicodemus, we must understand that Jesus is so much more than just a teacher. He's a saviour who must put our faith in, who must trust him now and have him as Lord now of all of our lives and for eternity. Let me rub that in a little bit further if I can, just to check how you view Jesus. Is he just a teacher? Or is he your saviour? Think about it, you know, I'm sure over this last week, uh, you're all as rubbish as me, and uh, we, we, we sin, we turn our backs on God's loving rule in our lives. It's rebellion. And you've done something wrong before God. You know you have. You feel the guilt and you feel the shame of that. What do you do? Now, if you think Jesus is a teacher, what do you do? You know you failed him. And if you fail a teacher, what do you do? Think back a few years, many of you, you know, teach at school and so on. When you fail a teacher at school, what do you have to do? Well, out of fear for the teacher, you have to try and change your life, don't you? You've got to try and get it better. If you didn't do that and you failed him, you've got to do better next time. You grit your teeth, you get on, and you do everything you can so there's less chance of doing what you did again. So you don't want to fail again. You just try harder. That's what you do if you understand Jesus as a teacher. But if you understand him as a saviour, oh, you'll see that wrong thing that you did. You'll see that sin in your life. But you'll see that sin, but you'll see what's going on under the surface as well, because the Spirit's worked in your heart. You've understood that the Saviour's worked in you, that you have new life. And you'll see that instead of trusting Him as Lord, you've trusted perhaps yourself, or you've seen others as Lord in your life. You've exchanged Christ as Lord and Saviour for something else. Do you see the difference? If you view Jesus just as a teacher, all you can do is just try harder. Force yourself with gritted teeth before you fall again. And if you view Jesus as a saviour, what happens is you meet him in his word and by a spirit in your heart. And you meet him in his love. And what does he do? 
He melts your heart. Because he knows your heart. He resides within your heart. He knows your weaknesses and you can be honest with him to the depths of your motivations. And when that happens, you can move forward in the arms of embrace, of his embrace. Trusting him as Lord. Living out this new birth. This new life that you receive through faith in him. Do you see that in Nicodemus? Well, not really in this passage. We hardly hear much of Nicodemus. As I showed you last week, we get it in John 3. It's quite limited. Jesus just talks to him. He teaches him. And what does Nicodemus do? This great man of that culture. He has the humility to listen. He listens to him as Jesus teaches him that he is his saviour. And Nicodemus carries on listening. Flip over to John chapter 7 if you can. We did look at this last week, but I'll point it out again. Nicodemus listens and he continues to listen. He has a humility to submit his heart, his life to Jesus. John chapter 7 verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and was one of their own number, speaking of the religious leaders of the Jews here, asked... Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? The Jewish leaders didn't want to hear Jesus, but Nicodemus says, no, let's carry on hearing him. Let's continue to listen. Let's have the humility to listen. He's now encouraging others to do so. But turn with me, if you can, to John 19. It's the the only other occurrence we see of uh, Nicodemus in John's Gospel. Well, at all, really. John 19, verse 31. Page 1088. Jesus has died. Verse 31. Now it was the day of preparation. And the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. And he goes through the two things that happened. Verse 36. These things happened so that scripture would be filled Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. And here we get to verse 38. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly had feared the Jewish leaders. And with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus. The man who had earlier visited Jesus at night, Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 35 kilograms, taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. What's Nicodemus doing? Don't hear this wrongly. He's doing women's work. In that culture and of that time, only women would have done this work. I'm not saying that that's right or wrong, I'm just saying in that time, only women would have done this work. But here we see two rich old men who could not be seen to touch a dead person and... And this is culturally unheard of. 
Something's changed in these men. Nicodemus has seen Jesus not just as a teacher, but as the one who will be lifted up as saviour on a cross. And he's seen that. And now he comes with his heart melted with new life and he is born again. He knows the one, he trusts the one whose labour and pain, who he's now seen. And that is the one who's brought him new life. As a result, what's he, what's, he, what's he doing here as we close? And what are we willing to do as we've seen our Saviour lifted up? I think what we see here is that he's willing to honour the one. He's willing to honour the one who has given him new life. Secondly, I think we see he's willing to step outside the comfort of cultural norms for the one who's given him new life. What I'm saying there is Nicodemus is unashamedly born again. My friends, as we close now, can I say this? I don't think we can just understand that we are born again and leave it there. With melted hearts, we must trust Jesus as our Saviour and Lord. And we must live it out. Let's pray we do just that. Let's pray.